Good morning, everyone. As Lisa said, my name's Sam. Uh, and as Narelle said earlier, we've come to the end of our series in Philippians. So today's reading will be Philippians chapter 4. And that starts on page 1826, if you have one of these Bibles. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father belong glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would be with our spirits now as we, as we uh, spend this precious time uh, listening to you, feeding upon you. And please transform our minds and please transform our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Contentment. On Friday, Narelle and I were walking through Rundle Mall on our day off. In the middle of the mall, there was a massive queue of people, one of those queues that snakes around four or five times outside the 
Apple store and there were umbrellas and there were muesli bars and drink bottles being handed out to the people um, in front of this packed store where no one was moving, it was just all so packed, just so that people could get the new iPhone. And as we were walking past, I had to resist, there was a tremendous temptation within to want to stop and just announce it's not going to make you more content. Just be on your way. It doesn't matter. Just just go. Live the rest of your lives. It's just beautiful outside. Don't be stuck looking down. Last week, my mechanic said that after 20 years, it's time to upgrade our Tarago. Not hard. An old tractor would be an upgrade. So I hop online to carsales.com. Up flash the ads, of course, and you know it doesn't take long before as I've started comparing and contrasting my minimum price, my, sorry, my maximum price level has, has, has kind of edged up, edged up, edged up. Um, there's always something better, isn't it? Always something a bit zippy. Well, anything could be zippier than that. Uh, but before I know it, discontent has taken root in my heart. For 50 years, Mick Jaggers from the Rolling Stones, who's been telling us, He can't get no satisfaction. And this, even though he tries and he tries and he tries and he tries, but he just can't get no satisfaction. Right. What makes you content? There were some great answers on our Facebook page to that question. Freshly mowed lawn. Watching the sky. Reading to the kids on a beanbag. Watching my little boy fall asleep. Seeing my children laugh. Submitting an assignment on time. When a job is done, a good cup of tea, setting the fire in the wood burner, turning on the high beams on a really dark road. There are moments of contentment, aren't there? But they're moments. Broader than that, what is it you most want that will make your life complete? Rest. Oh, please. Work. Our friendship. Love, your mortgage paid off, good health, good results, success and security for your kids. What is it? Even if you had contentment for a day, imagine that, or a month, or even a year, time doesn't stay still. Things happen. After the last year, I now know my smash repairer personally by name. Thanks, kids. All right, what's the secret of lasting contentment no matter what? People put statues of Buddha in their gardens. Buddha's supposedly a symbol of contentment. Does he deliver? Not many know that on his deathbed, Buddha was recorded by his followers as of saying, I have not found the truth, I'm still searching. Contrast the Apostle Paul, who in verse 11 says, I have learned the secret of being content. Recently, I read the book Barefoot Investor. I learned that there's no discernible increase in reported happiness amongst Australians once people earn over $78,000 a year. Does that mean that you need $78,000 a year to be happy? What do you think? If we interviewed 100 people, 100 Australians, and asked them, with $78,000 a year, are you content? What do you think their answer would be? I just need a little bit more, more, more. What a contrast to the Apostle Paul who says, I've learned the secret of being content. In any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. This is real, real contentment. And he's writing from prison. He's not faking it. And the Philippians know he's not faking. When, when Paul first came to Philippi, he was arrested. And there he was put in prison. He was in stocks. 
He was under guard. It was the middle of the night. What's he doing? He's singing hymns of praise to God. It's there in Acts chapter 16. Now he's in another prison and he's writing and he's speaking of his joy and of his contentment. He's learned the secret of being content that's not dependent upon the com- on his comfort. This is contentment that lasts. Wouldn't it be wonderful to learn that secret? How do you get it? Well, it's not a quick answer. It's not like an answer to a crossword. Paul says he's learned the secret. Learning things takes time. It takes time to learn that secret. Have you learned the secret to contentment? If I asked the people in your household, would they say, yes, yes, they've learned the secret, or no, no, they've got a long way to go. I'm still learning it. But if you could walk out of here with at least the knowledge of how to learn it, that'd be worthwhile, wouldn't it? Philippians 4 gives it to us. Because through the Apostle Paul, God wants us to open our eyes to contentment and to joy. In what he says, Paul addresses five barriers to contentment that we have, five truisms, which are statements that can be true for us, which instead of producing contentment, they produce the opposite. They produce anxiety. These are barriers which we need to overcome. And each time Paul tells us how to overcome the barrier, and each time we get closer to the secret of contentment. And the common thread that runs through this in his answers is joy, or more particularly his command to rejoice in the Lord. The first barrier to belief is the statement, I'm not good enough for God. And if we're honest, we've all thought that of ourselves. So that if we know something of who God is and something of his holiness and who we are, we know we're not good enough and we wonder whether, therefore, in the final analysis, is what we have done enough for God? And our anxiety about this can run very deep. Because there's no other relationship in the end that's more important than this one. And we might mask our anxiety, we might distract ourselves from that anxiety, but it always comes back, it's always there. Paul addressed it last week, and I'm I'm mentioning it this week, because in chapter 4, verse 1, that's Paul's conclusion for everything he said last week in chapter 3. And the conclusion is, Therefore, my brothers... That's how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. And from his conclusion, there's none of the anxiety which says I'm not good enough, that anxiety which leaves us fearful and trembling. There's all of his confident assurance which leaves us standing firm. Not trembling, standing firm. How could anyone possibly think they could stand confidently before the Lord? Isn't it arrogant for someone to say I'm good enough? Well, the answer is that it's not we who are good enough, it's Jesus who's good enough. It's like the old adage, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And that's true in many things in life, and it's also true in this area of salvation. It's not what you know about God, it's who you know. Paul knows Christ, and Christ makes all the difference. And that's why at the start of chapter 3, he says, rejoice in the Lord, because Chapter 4, verse 1, that's how you stand firm in the Lord. If we're scratching our heads and wondering what on earth he's talking about, in chapter 3, he contrasts two different ways of thinking. The first says, my standing before God is dependent upon me, on my religious credentials, on my religious performance, on the good I've done for God, on the laws I've obeyed. That way of thinking, which is based on law, that will always leave us short 
because we've, we'll never have actually known if we'd have, we've done enough. There's a second way of thinking, which says my righteous standing before God has nothing to do with what I have done, but all to do with what Jesus has done. So because he lived the perfect life that I haven't, that means that when he died on the cross, he didn't die for his own sins, which meant that he could die for other people's sins. In fact, he dies for the sins of the world. He dies for mine and for yours. And so he takes away our guilt, and more than that, his righteous life counts for ours. And so the contrast comes out in chapter 3, verse 9, when Paul says, I want to know Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So that when we know Christ and believe in him, God gives us the righteousness that rightly belongs to Jesus because he lived and he died for us. And by rejoicing in him, celebrating this, in all that we have because of him, what it means is that our anxiety about our ultimate standing with God vanishes because our standing before God is no longer about us. It's all about him and what he's won for us. So there's the first barrier you see overcome, the anxious thought that I'm not good enough. That's part of the secret of being content, to believe it's all about Christ. The second barrier to contentment is the thought that this life is all there is. Have you ever wondered that, thought that? That's a barrier to contentment because as good as this life can be, and we heard from the Facebook answers, it can be good, can't it? There are great moments. As good as this life can be, the moments won't last. We are all prone to sickness, we're prone to grief and loss and ultimately to death. Knowing that can make you very discontent and downcast and despair. But listen to the joy in how Paul speaks of the Philippian Christians who share his belief in Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 1, he calls them, My brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. They are the people in chapter 3 who are fellow citizens of the kingdom of heaven, who eagerly await with Paul a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And he's pointing us to life beyond this one. And chapter 3 ends with this great high hope. And that's why he tells them to rejoice in the Lord. And that's how chapter 4, verse 1, they stand firm in the Lord. Because by constantly rejoicing that this life isn't all there is. By rejoicing that the best is yet to come. It means that if you think that you're a loser in this life. If you feel like you've missed out. Paul is saying you haven't. Not in the final analysis. The best is yet to come, and what is to come is better than here. In Christ, you are not a loser, you are a winner. So that puts a new perspective on things, and it enables you to be content even when you don't have much. It's another part of the secret of being content in any and every situation. You've got a great hope. The third barrier to contentment is the pain of relational fallout. The pain of knowing you are no longer friends with people you used to be friends with. You are not in good relationship with them. This was a reality with two people in the Philippian church, Udiah and Syntyche. They were once friends, not only friends, they were more than friends. Uh, They were women who had contended at Paul's side in the cause of the gospel. 
they were actively involved and for some reason they'd fallen out and we don't know why. But they were not the friends that they had once been and it was affecting the church. So much so that Paul is in a different city, he's in prison, he's heard about it and now he's addressing them specifically in this letter which would have been read out to the whole of the church. So he's addressing them knowing that everyone else is hearing him address them. And he's pleading with them in the hearing of everyone else, verse 2, to be of the same mind in the Lord, to agree with one another in the Lord. And if they can't or they won't, then he arranges mediation between them in verse 3. He wants it sorted. Church is Christ's body. He is the head. We are interconnected as his members. The church is our family. And relational breakdown is a massive barrier to contentment because instead of looking forward to meeting together, it can create anxiety at the thought of meeting together. And when we don't want to meet, the spirit of God is grieved, which is to say that God experiences grief in his spirit. I plead with Yodiah and I plead with Sintiki to agree with each other in the Lord. Now, does that mean that there's no room for any differences of opinion at all? That Christians must agree about everything? We've kind of got to be a cult or something like that. Of course not. We can disagree about secondary issues. We can't disagree about primary issue. The primary issue is the gospel. We can't disagree about that because that's what makes us Christians. That's what gives us our unity. If you have a different gospel, you're actually not in fellowship with one another at all because one of you isn't a Christian. You can't disagree about what's primary, but you can disagree about what's secondary. In this case, this wasn't a primary disagreement, because if it was, Paul would have corrected them. The difference is over a secondary issue, more likely the way something was done of style. Maybe someone had hurt someone, they hadn't apologised, who knows? We don't know. Whatever the issue was, the problem wasn't that they saw things differently. The problem was that they let that difference be a wedge between them. And one of the main reasons why Paul wrote this letter was so so that these women would put their differences to rest. You know, we read verses 2 and 3 and think, oh, that's just a little moment, a little, little irrelevant detail for us. Actually, the whole letter has been building to this application. That's why in chapter 1 he speaks about partnership in the gospel. That's why he speaks about being unified, being of one mind, standing firm in one spirit. That's why in chapter 2 he tells them to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He tells them to value others above themselves, looking to the interests of others ahead of their own. That's why he says in their relationships they've got to have the same mindset of that as Christ Jesus. Be humble, don't grumble. That's why he shines a spotlight on the examples of Timothy and Epaphroditus, who didn't look out for their own interests but those of Jesus Christ. That's why in chapter 3, he calls them to live according to the pattern of the cross. That's why he lifts their eyes to the massive hope of resurrection, which they share. It's much bigger, you see. And that's why now in chapter 4, he describes them as people whose names are in the book of life. In other words, if God has accepted both of you, well, you have to accept one another. I mean, you're going to be in heaven for a very long time together, aren't you? it makes sense to work it out how are they to do it suppose there are people here who've fallen out and don't get along how how will they get along well they're to agree with each other 
in the Lord, which means both acknowledging that they share relationship with Christ and therefore with each other in Christ. And both realising that this is primary and that must trump any difference that they have. Which means then relating in humility towards one another out of respect for Jesus and love for him with the firm resolve to keep secondary issues secondary, not make secondary issues primary, because that would be dishonouring to Christ who died so that they could be one. Practically, how do they do it? Paul tells them in verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And notice that he then repeats it. And you can imagine him figuratively eyeballing from prison these women as imagining as they stand there with their, their arms folded and their lips set. And he says, I say it again, rejoice. <laughs> Why does he say this? It's very hard to remain angry with a person if you're both rejoicing in the Lord. And it's very hard to rejoice in the Lord if you're holding on to a hurt or a grudge. So he says, both of you rejoice in the Lord. And then, of course, he knows will flow that personal resolve not to change the other person but to change yourself. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. What do you want to be known for on your tombstone? What do you want written there? Thou very good with money. Always kept a neat house. Paul says... Aim to be known for your gentleness. Now, the word gentleness is very hard to translate. It means gentleness, yes, but also reasonableness and forbearance. It's the opposite quality to that which divides. Gentleness, reasonableness, forbearance. Make it your ambition to be known for this. And then he says, an extra reason, the Lord is near. That is, the Lord is not far from us. We can't see him, but he sees how we relate. He knows our thoughts. He knows the motives of our hearts. Could we imagine carrying on and being divisive with the, in, the, you know, in the presence of Jesus himself if he was in the room? No, no, we couldn't. He says, well, let you be gentle with one another because the Lord is near. So that's the third barrier overcome. By rejoicing in the Lord. The fourth barrier to contentment is the thought, I'm not safe. This was a real issue for the Philippian Christians. They've already experienced suffering for the gospel and now Paul's in chains in a Roman cell and they're expecting similar things to happen to them. What's the secret to be content even in that situation? How could you be content when you're anxious about what might happen to you or might happen to your kids if you're thrown into the clink? This is a real fear for many Christians around the world. And Paul knew it. He wasn't removed from that situation. He was in it. And so he's not being flippant or you know, unreal when he says, don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And then here's the promise. Then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard, literally will garrison... And there's irony here because Paul's in a prison. The peace of God which passes all understanding will garrison your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus.
Now, again, he's not saying that we won't have reason to be anxious. He's saying what to do with your anxiety. Pray about it. And even more strongly, petition God. Do it with thanksgiving, but make your request known to God. If you're anxious, develop a reflex reaction. Pray about it. And the promise is that God will answer. And it may be by delivering you. Chapter 2, Paul says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will no longer be chains in chains for you. He may deliver you, but the promise is that when you pray, God will protect your mind and your heart from caving into panic. In 2001, when the Taliban took over Kabul in Afghanistan, three Australian aid workers were taken as hostages by the Taliban. In 2002, I spoke to one of them, Diana Thomas. I asked her whether she felt that her life was ever in danger. She said, yes, three times. Three times I was told I would be shot before a firing squad. She was in a cell with rats running around. It was squalid. It was awful. She said, you know, but God protected me. And he made the whole experience almost surreal for me, a bit like a dream. I asked her whether she was glad that she'd been through it. She said, yes, because she realized then, strangely, that the safest place that she could be in Afghanistan was in the arms of God. The peace of God, you see, which transcends all understanding. And then I said, would you go back if you could? She said, absolutely. When you're anxious, pray with thanksgiving. And then, of course, instead of thinking of thoughts of revenge, if you suffer, think of whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Are you beginning to learn the secret of contentment? The final barrier to contentment that's dealt with is the deep, nagging anxiety that all Australians are conditioned to feel a thousand times a week, this terrible thought that we carry that I'm not going to have enough. Will following Jesus and being financially generous mean that I'm going to struggle to pay the school fees or the power bill or afford ever a car? If I go to CV, if I send my kids to CV, will that set me, will it set my kids on a course of being financially poor for the rest of their lives? Well, we haven't got time to go through verses 10 to 19, but they are tender verses. Knowing their apostle was in prison, the Philippians sent Paul practical aid, food and clothing, with Epaphroditus. And Paul's genuinely touched. He wasn't expecting it, nor did he even feel that he needed it. Because he had learned to be content, whatever the situations, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So finally, we're coming to it. What's his secret? Whatever the secret is, Paul's learned it not just when he was poor and materially had little, but also when he was well off. And you need to learn it in both situations. Because it's possible that someone who has little and learned to be content, if they suddenly come into money, they could they could likely find themselves very discontent because they've opened now to a whole world of distractions and temptations and possibilities. It's a bit like thinking of upgrading from a Tarago. All right. Contentment in any and every situation means contentment whether you have much or little. 
Paul's learned the secret. What is it? Twice, Paul points to God. First for himself, then for others. For himself, verse 13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. For others, verse 19, my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. For himself, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. He's not saying that God enables him to walk on water, that God enables him to keep pushing himself with zero sleep and with zero money and with zero uh, food. That would be to be non-human. What he's saying is that God, whatever God calls him to do, whatever God calls him to do in his service of Christ, whatever situation he is required to be in, if that means being put up somewhere materially well, if it means being beaten and kicked out of town and thrown into the slammer, he can do it not because he's strong in himself, but because God strengthens him to do it. And he's learnt it time and time and time again. And then for others, of course, he's confident because he knows what, what God is like, that whatever our needs are, God will meet them, especially our need to be strengthened when we have little. Have you learnt the secret of being content? The secret is God himself and who he is to you and who you've learned him to be. Learning that in every situation he will meet all your needs, whatever the barrier to contentment. When you think that you're not good enough, rejoice in the Lord and suddenly you're reminded, yeah, that's right, I'm not good enough, but Christ is. That's the whole point. When you're worried that this life is all there is and you're getting down because you think you're a loser, rejoice in the Lord because then you realize that the best is yet to come. Christ is going to raise me from the dead. I'll be transformed to be like him. I am rich indeed. When you're anxious because you... You're no longer friends with someone because of a relational fallout. Rejoice in the Lord. And then when you do it, God does surgery on your heart. The, the offense, the hurt that you feel loses its intensity. And God gives you the strength and the grace to forgive and to reconcile. When you worry that you won't be safe, rejoice in the Lord. God promises a peace which passes all understanding. When you worry that you won't have enough, rejoice in the Lord and you'll be strengthened by God to deal with whatever you have, whether you've got plenty or you're in want. The secret is God. Have you learned it? When I um, asked on our Facebook page what gives you contentment, there was one answer which just shone. Mandy, knowing that Christ is in me, is with me through everything, all the time, and that I can praise and cry out to him at any time, and that my God hears me and he loves me no matter what. That's the secret. And she's learned it. And Father, help us all to learn it as we rejoice in you. Amen.